Wow, that's such calming music, isn't it? I love that music. Paul, would you send that to me so I can play it when I'm home? I need that. That's good music. Hey, good morning and welcome. Uh, we are starting a new series uh, this morning called Beyond the Chair. Um, you've heard me talk about this, that uh, one of our elders said that somehow he would love it if all of us together could could get more uh, of an understanding of what following Jesus is like uh, beyond the chair, beyond just coming to a church service and, and sitting and sitting through the service and leaving, that there's more to following Jesus. Um, I looked this morning, by the way, the Forbes Top 100 Companies list, Top 100 Companies to Work For in America. It's always been there, it's always been in the top three, and I checked this morning, and it's number four. The company that I started with full-time 40 years ago this summer. Oh, I could be retired this summer. Oh well, can't cry over spilt milk. Wegmans Food Markets is a, uh, uh, is a chain that started in Rochester, New York, and it's gone, I think, as far south as Virginia, and maybe as far west as Ohio. And uh, it's one of the top companies to work for in America. And I suppose if I would have gone to work for them and wouldn't have been in the church world, um, who knows? Would I have attended church? I don't know. I don't know what my life would have been like. I often think that as pastors sometimes, we're such hard cases that we had to become pastors to follow Jesus. Like just, we couldn't just be regular church members because that wouldn't work for us. We're, we're an extra hard group. Um, but I would imagine that if I went to uh, work for Wegmans and stayed with them all these years, at some point I would have visited a church and I would have filled out a form and I would have gotten a call from somebody like Londa following up on me. And I think that the, that the call would have been something like this. Uh, oh, hey, Londa, nice to meet you. Yeah, my, my name is Jeff, yep. Oh yeah, oh, I'm happy to follow Jesus, yeah. Oh, of course I know what that, I know what that means. Yeah, what time are your services? Oh, is, is there a kid's program? How's the coffee? Most church coffee is pretty lame, yeah. No, no, I said, I, I said missing church is a shame. Yeah, yeah. What's the feel at your church? How about, how about the music? Is it, how's the preaching? I hate being bored. Yeah, no, 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 I said, no, I said the preaching, I always want more. I always want more of that preaching. Uh, yeah, no, I'm happy to follow Jesus, Londa. What, my schedule? Well, I'm pretty busy, can I? I don't think I could help, no, it's, my schedule's pretty packed, I don't have much wiggle room in my life right now, but this is just a stage, it's a stage that our company is going through, we're busy right now, and we're gonna get out of it, it's gonna slow down soon. So no, no, I'm not interested in joining one of your teams. Homework, oh no, I'm done with that a long time ago. Oh, my kids' homework? Churches give kids homework to do? Oh, and the parents are supposed to help them with it? Uh, we both work. I mean, we want to, but I just, I can't guarantee anything. You sure you can't fit everything in while my kids are at church? They have to bring it home? Oh, yo, because the family is supposed to do it together. Yeah, well, um, oh, you follow, you follow up on the homework on Wednesday. Wait, I thought church was Sunday. It's on Wednesday too? 
Oh, oh, it's only for the kids on Wednesday. Oh, yeah. No, we should probably be able to get them there. How long is that program? Like two, three hours? Oh, it's only an hour and a half? Oh, okay. Well, um, yeah, we could probably get a what? What's a small group? So it's, so it's more church, but it's not in the church? So it's, it's home. They do life together. Sounds like a cult. No, no, I said it sounds cool. That sounds cool. Yeah, no, we'll think about it. We'll think about it. But like I said, I mean, we're down with following Jesus. I mean, we're just pretty busy. No, no, down with following Jesus means we're up on it. I mean, I mean no, it means we like it. Okay, never mind, no. Okay, we'll think about small groups. But my wife and I are happy to follow Jesus from 10 to 11 on Sunday mornings, Yeah. We just don't want to get dragged into all these extra commitments. Yeah. Well, I've learned as a leader that the most important word in the English language is no. Yeah. Because too many people, they say yes to everything and then they overcommit themselves. So we're just going to start slow. We're going to take this church thing easy. We don't want to do anything rash. What? How long have we been attending? Oh, I mean, off and on, like five years, probably. Uh, well, we're probably some of the really committed ones. Yeah, we're, I know we're happy. We're happy to follow Jesus. Hey, listen, I got to go. Maybe I'll see you on Sunday morning. That's probably the type of a call that I would have had. And uh, if you look up uh, syncretism, which I did, syncretism says, my glasses are over on the chair. Let's see. Oh, there we go. The amalgamation or attempted amalgamation of different religions, cultures, or schools of thought. And so in America, we take our culture and we take our religion and then we may take our economics or our politics and we'll just, we'll just mix them all together. And that's called syncretism, when we mix them together. And in America, we've done a pretty good job in the church world and in church cultures of kind of mixing things together. And so this morning, we want to talk about what does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to follow Jesus? Now, this is week one. This is the first week. So I want to talk about two realities in following Jesus. And the first reality is a relational reality. There's a relational reality in following Jesus. So some people think, oh, well, um, you know, what does your church do? And how does your church do uh, communion and baptism? And what, what does your church believe? And uh, well, what time are your... And Jesus came for us. He came to have a relationship with people. So I have these chairs up here, and I hope this is helpful to you. This was really helpful to me. Um, this chair right here... This is the king's chair. This is going to be God the Father's chair right here, okay? And then this chair over here, this is going to be the Holy Spirit. You thought I was going to say Jesus, didn't you? No, this is the Holy Spirit's chair. And then this chair is going to be Jesus' chair. So we've got three white chairs because God is holy, so they had to be white chairs, um, and, and this is a picture, this is an illustration 
of a God who is three in one, but a God who is in eternal communion and eternal relationship with himself, with one another. There's this eternal loving community, um, this intimacy, because you know, we, you know God didn't start. He didn't have a beginning. So God has always been, and he's always been three in one. And so there's been this camaraderie, there's been this fellowship, this friendship, this loving relationship going on for a long time, a long time. And what God does is when, when we come to faith in Jesus, God invites us into this fellowship, and he tells us to come right in the middle. We get right in the middle, and then he surrounds us. Now, what, um, <clears throat> what this shows is that God invites us right into the very essence of the divine. Now, I don't know if you think of yourself in that way, that you've been invited into the being of God, this, this eternal friendship, this eternal fellowship, that God doesn't want you to be a spectator. He doesn't want you to be um, just one of many out there that are far away. God, while he's transcendent, he doesn't like to be transcendent. He doesn't like to be wholly other in anything other than essence. But in terms of relationship, God wants to have a relationship with you and me. He wants to have a relationship with us. And the crazy thing is that it's not like two people that come together, even in marriage, right? Two come together, the, the husband and wife, and they're one, they become one. Okay, that's wonderful, that's fantastic. But with God, it's even, it's, it's deeper, it's much more complex than that. You've got, this, you've got this triune God who each part, each person of the Trinity works to love us and minister to us and serve us and bring us into fellowship with him. And so it's three against one. And the one which being us comes in and loses him or herself in the three. Now, you might think, okay, well, what is he even talking about? Let's look at the scriptures. Let's look at Ephesians. Now, this is going to be up on the screen. So, in Ephesians chapter 1, it says, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal the promised Holy Spirit. So it says, when you believe, you were marked. Who did the marking? God the Father. God the Father marked you. Have you believed? Have you believed in Jesus? Because if you've believed in Jesus, then God the Father marked you. But then it says, in him, in Jesus, you were marked in him, re referencing back to Jesus, to, to Christ. 
you were marked in Jesus. What does that mean? Well, this is, um, this is connected to the fact that we're his body, that Christ is in us and we're in Christ and we're his body and he is the head of the body and we are the body. We were marked in Christ with what? What was the mark? The mark was literally the Holy Spirit. It wasn't just like, you know, 777 on your forehead or some kind of, you know, red marker so you can leave the game and come back later. No, it's not even a real mark. It's a person. It's the Holy Spirit. The, the identification that God gives you is the Holy Spirit, and he does it Christ included. It's in him. It's in Christ. So we go farther down, Ephesians 1, verse 22, it says, and God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be had over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. So somehow we are his body. That's pretty deep. That's pretty mind-blowing that we're the body of Christ. You guys, I know we're religious people. We hear this terminology all the time. I'm asking you to hear it in a different way. Hear it relationally from a God who loves you, loves, wants, desires, is thrilled about. Who wants you to come right into the heart of who he is. And then it goes on in chapter two, listen to these two verses. In him, in Jesus, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Now, if you start pulling that apart, it's real fun theologically. Like as a theologian, oh, I love, I love this stuff. I love Paul. I love his writings. I mean, they're just, they're so, they're so, well, it's the Bible. But let's start picking at it relationally. What does this mean relationally when we look and it says that in him, the whole building is joined together. The whole building is us. This is now us. So we're talking the relational reality of us in God's eternal community, but us is more than one. Us is the church. So everybody in Newton who's ever placed their faith, true faith, saving faith in Jesus Christ is part of the body of Christ in Newton. And we are joined together in him, in Jesus. And we all together rise to become this holy temple in the Lord. And in Jesus, we're being built together to become this dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So in the Old Testament, it was the, ta it was the tabernacle, right? As they traveled through the wilderness, and then it was the temple. And there was the holy place, there was the holy of holies, there was the glory of God, there was the ark of the covenant, there was the mercy seat, there was a cherubim, there was all of that, right? And God dwelt, especially when it was the tabernacle and they traveled. 
and they could see his presence. And when the high priest would go into the, te- into the temple on the Day of Atonement, he would go in where God was. But now there's, there's not that. Jesus, ironically, walking the Temple Mount, says, um, tear this place down and I'll rebuild it in three days. He wasn't talking about the bricks. He was talking about the system. This system of coming to God through the temple and through sacrifices, oh no, that was all gonna be past. That was gonna become, as Hebrew says, obsolete. Jesus was gonna take care of that. And he did in three days. When, when God raised him from the dead, that whole system crumbled. That's why, that's why when he died, the temple veil was ripped in half. And this separation between people and God was no more. And that's why in Hebrews it says, we can boldly come to the throne of grace. So when it says here that we are being built together, look at that word together. So I said in the little phony phone call, uh, life together, oh, doing life together? No, really. We should do life together if we are being built together to become a holy dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So the spirit of God lives not just within us individually, you guys. He lives within us. He lives within us corporately as a body. Then you go to 1 Corinthians and you start reading in chapter 6 where it talks about the body. It talks about how our bodies are not our own. They belong to God because they were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your bodies. And then by the time you get to chapter 11, he's talking about how the body is being disrespected while the body is taking part in the body and blood of Jesus. This word body is used over and over. It has to do with Jesus, with his body, it has to do with us, his body. It very rarely is ever being used of our individual selves. There's always a communal aspect to it. So you can look down your row and you might see people you don't really like. You gotta think about that. Because God likes them. He loves them and you'll say you love them. Yeah, I don't know that I like them. But when we think about what scripture says about us, we can start to like each other. Because what God did for us in this thing, by inviting us into his eternal personhood, relationship with him, he's got room for all of us, room for all of us in that. And he wants us to be together. So one more passage, John, and this isn't on the screen, but in John 17, in light of all that, listen to this in John 17. Jesus says, my prayer is not for them alone, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave to me, that they may be one as we are one. 
I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Holy cow, as we say in New York. I mean, wow, you guys, this is an awesome thing. This isn't religion. There's nothing to do with religion. We had a funeral here on Friday morning, and I love talking to people who don't normally go to church. And I love telling them that God is supposed to love them, and he loves them, but he also likes them, and he wants them, and he's provided a way for them, and he's provided a savior. And he's not out to get them, he's out to save them. Jesus didn't come to judge, he came to save. He didn't come to to punish and to bring his wrath, he came to provide a way and to give hope and to share hope. So I don't know what you're going through in your life, I don't know what's going on in, in your relationships, in your family, in your job. Um, but you know what? You are surrounded by the triune God. You're surrounded by the triune God who invites you into eternal fellowship with him. That's, it's mind-blowing when you start thinking about it and when you start thinking about it um, not just theologically, but when you start thinking about it relationally, that there's a real relational aspect with God and us. Secondly, there's this, uh, there's this lifestyle reality. We find that in Luke chapter 14. We find it in other places too, but I'm just picking this one short passage. There's a lifestyle reality. So this um, following Jesus, there's a relational reality that often we don't think about. When we think about following Jesus, we think about things that we're doing, things that we're doing for God. We don't think about the relationship that we have with him and him and him. But there is, that, there is a lifestyle, there is an approach to life, a, a worldview, a life view that's involved, and Jesus talks about it in Luke 14, where he says, where it says in verse 25, that large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, he was not enamored by the large crowds, and he knew that some of them were there for great reasons, and some of them were there for like whatever reasons, and he was about to kind of sift the crowd a little bit. And he said that if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Now that's an often discussed verse, just meaning that, hey, if you don't put me first, you can't be my disciple. You can't do this synchronous syncretism thing where, oh, yeah, sure, we'll take Jesus. Yeah, we're, we're glad to follow Jesus along with uh, uh, the NFL and um, uh, the big whatever, I guess they played yesterday, the college whatever thing played yesterday, right? I mean, I've only been to one game in the live, and it was at the Jack Trice Stadium thing. And uh, I, don't, I don't even remember if the team won when I was there. I hear they I hear that team didn't win yesterday. Was that a good thing that they didn't win? Okay, all right. Hey, amen, all right, so, woo, go Iowa. Was that right, was it go Iowa? Is that what I'm supposed to say, go Iowa? Yeah. 
Anyway, um, you can't just throw Jesus in with all the other things in your life. He, he, he rises to the top where God seated him at his right hand. He rises to the top and he's first. And then everything else, everything else um, yields and surrenders itself to Jesus in our lives. Everything does. Everything does. And we do. We do. Because following Jesus, amazingly, in this passage, looks a lot like surrender, sacrifice, selflessness, service to others. And verse 27, he says, and whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. We remember Jesus, he had the cross carried for him. He was carrying it. And then Simon of Cyrene was told, hey, you carry the cross. If you're carrying the cross, you're going somewhere. And the cross was only used to crucify. And what Jesus is saying is, there, there might be some sacrifice involved. There likely will be sacrifice involved. Carry the cross because you might need it. And if you're not willing to do that, you really can't follow me because you're really not, you're not putting me first. But he's saying that it's not, I mean, the scriptures say this as if we were to look in other places. This is not a bad thing. Sacrifice is not a bad thing. Service is not a bad thing. Suffering is not always a bad thing. It can bring good and great things into our lives. And Jesus would show us when he went to the cross. And then he gives these, uh, these two little um, uh, metaphors. He says, suppose one of you wants to build a tower won't you first sit down and you're going to estimate the costs to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you uh, lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, uh, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Where my wife and I go in the summers to visit our family, between her mom's house and her sister's house on Union Road, right in the middle, there's this church building that they added onto this, this big addition Big, beautiful, kind of like the church on 12th Street, right? You have that, that big, beautiful addition added on to the smaller one. Well, they added it on, but they couldn't finish it. They didn't even fill the windows in. The windows were open, I mean, open, birds flying through for years and years and years. And I would drive by and I would think of this passage. And I would think, what, what happened there? They started to build, but... It's kind of embarrassing. It's embarrassing to the cause of Christ that they didn't, it's just sitting there. This summer we went by it and it's all finished. It's finished. And there's a different name on the front of the church. And I said to my wife, I want to go there. I want to see these people that were able to finish and that are filling the church now. And I, I wasn't able to go. We were only there for a week, but I want to go there the next time that we go back. And then he says, or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he's not able, he'll send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. Hey, let's talk about this. I mean, let's be reasonable. Let's work out some uh, amicable agreement. There's no need for bloodshed, right? They would do that. And he's saying in the same way, if you're gonna build something, you have to count the cost first. It's a prerequisite. And if you're gonna wage a battle, you have to make sure you can win it. That's a prerequisite. 
In the same way, he says in verse 33, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciple. That's the lifestyle reality, that we hold everything real loosely, real loosely. Now, are riches bad? Oh, thank goodness there's the book of Proverbs. Not at all, right? You look at Proverbs and you see the the godly way to handle the wealth that God gives us, to help and to serve and to bring honor to him. But we have to be ready to give up everything we have. In fact, it says, those of you who do not give up everything you have. So can you be a Christian and not be a disciple? <laughs> you can argue that out in the coffee shop and I'm not joining you on that one. But there's, a, there's definitely a different emphasis here that you may, you may follow me or think you're following, but if you're not willing and not gonna give up, like don't lay claim to anything that it's your own. If you're not willing to give up everything you've got, you can't really call yourself a follower of Jesus. That's what he's saying. And so many of you would remember when you were younger, you said to God, God, I wanna serve you. God, I want to love you. I wanna give my whole life to you. God, I give everything I have to you. Use me in my life. And then you started living it. Then it got complicated, right? And now you're 30 or you're 50 or you're 80. And you look back and you say, did I give everything to God? And you can see where you kind of got off track here and there. Why? Because that's what life does. That's what life does to us. It, 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 it takes us off track at times. But God is always there. The story of the prodigal, right? God is the father, is always there. He's always out. He's always looking. And you don't have to go as wayward as the prodigal went just to kind of get yourself back on track. Say, okay, God, here I am today. I can't go back and start again, but I can begin today to make a brand new end. And God, what do you want me to do with what you've given me? I, I give it all to you. I'm willing to let it all go, but you've given it to me for a reason. And now I want to use it to serve you and to honor you. God, I'm yours. God, I'm willing to give everything to you. That's a life of freedom, everyone. That's a life of freedom. A life of bondage is when you hold on to it. You won't pull it out of my cold, dead fingers, God. Or maybe that's the only way you're gonna get it out of my cold, dead fingers. Somewhere in Psalms or Proverbs, it says that the guy who hangs on to his stuff, all his stuff just leaks out from his grasp. And the guy who gives just keeps getting richer and richer yet in order to give more and more away. Now, on the back end of this message this morning, I wanna talk for just a second about the marks of the early church. The early church, you wanna talk about following Jesus. Um, There were these things that the early church did that caused it to grow, that caused the gospel to spread around the world. Number one, they were inclusive of all people. So the early church, they had no buildings, right? They were countercultural. Uh, they were, they were um, looked down upon by the rest of society and the world. And somehow, 
they became a dominant force on the planet. Somehow, right? Because Jesus is king. But they were inclusive of all people. There was no caste system. There was a diversity of racial backgrounds. And it wasn't limited to one nation state. Doesn't matter where on earth you were from, you could be a part of this Jesus community. And that, that was... That was the way they followed God back then, uh, the first two, three hundred years. Number two, it was spread across socioeconomic lines. You had rich, educated elites alongside slaves praying to the same Lord. Men and women, uh, the rich and the poor, the strong and the weak, they were together. They, They were sitting on the same bench praying to the same God. And there was nothing like that in the world of, in that in the world of the first century. There was nothing like that. Number three, they viewed sexuality radically. One man, one woman, till death do us part. That was very radical back then. If you do some research on the Greco-Roman culture of, the, of New Testament times, you'll see that um, they, had, they had an ethic. They had mores about, about sexuality, what they should do and what they shouldn't do. But it was really broad about what they could do. It was very broad, much broader than what the scriptures give us. But amazingly, in the scriptural way, there's again the greatest freedom. Um, number four, they were, they were active in fighting infanticide and abortion. They were the first group to take in orphans and adopt them. I mean, they would just take babies they didn't want. They would go to full term. They wouldn't endanger the life of the mom. She'd deliver the baby. They would take it out in the field and they would leave it. They would take it to the refuse heap and they would leave it. Or, or, uh, or a slave trader would come and, and, and take it and raise it and it would be a slave. Um, but, the, but the Jesus people, they fetched them. They adopted them. They took care of them. They saved them. They were the only group doing that at that time. And then number five, they were nonviolent. They were, they were against any kind of military involvement. For several hundred years when the church started, they, they were not involved in military conflicts. They did not take a life. They took seriously what Jesus said about loving your enemy. So you look at these five things that they did, and it's interesting that they didn't take their culture and just mix it all together. Now, I'm certain, you know, we're the same as them. They're like us. I'm, I'm sure that they did in certain areas. But when the church first started, they, they, did not, they were not syncretistic. I mean, they were following Jesus, and that's why Constantine in 300 and whatever A.D. actually made it the religion of the empire, Christianity. And that's when things started to go downhill because whenever Christianity is getting pummeled and pounded and squashed and oppressed and suppressed, somehow it spreads, it spreads, it spreads. And it's always been like this for the last 2,000 years. You look around the earth where Christianity is, is, is being, people are being persecuted, the faith is growing and spreading, and it's still like that today. Be interesting to do some research online about that. You can see that that's true. So this second to last slide here, following Jesus for the early church was a dramatically compelling, peaceful, purposeful, and other-centered way of life that no culture of the first century possessed or could lay claim to. And spreading the gospel was simply 
following Jesus, then inviting others on the, Jesus, on the journey with you, on your journey with Jesus. And people would look and they would say, wow, these people are crazy. They're so peaceful. They're not retaliatory. They're not an eye for an eye. They save babies. They don't fight and kill. I like that. They, the husbands and wives love each other and the husbands, they actually lift up the wives and honor them. There's nothing like it in the world. So when Jesus says, hey, I want them to be so united so that the world will know that you, the Father, has sent me, that's what we can do today. We can be so full of love for one another and for our community and for others that people will look and say, this is different, this is different. Yes, they love, they love without denying truth. Somehow they hold to truth and they're loving in their actions at the same time. Somehow they have this relational situation going and they have a lifestyle situation going too where they're, they're living a certain way and they're loving one another and God and isn't that interesting because that's the way God designed it. That's the way God designed it. We never sacrifice truth when we truly love. So look down the row from yourself at the other people. These are the people that love. Maybe, um, maybe at some point in this series, we'll talk about confessing your sins to one another so that you can be healed. That's something, that's something our tribe doesn't do much of. But when we sit together and we confess our sins and we ask for prayer, wow, that, that brings us closer together. Maybe we'll talk about that. I, I wanna encourage you today, if you're here this morning and you say, you know, I, I, I've never, I don't really know what this is about. It's about Jesus. It's about God sending his son to die for our sins. And it's about Jesus, amazingly, defeating death and hell when, when God the Father raised him from the dead, raised him from the grave. And he is the one who is alive today and that's what our future is dependent on. And he has marked us with this security deposit called the Holy Spirit. So if, if you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, the Bible said whoever will call in the name of the Lord will be saved. Call out to Jesus. As, as we bow our heads right now, you just talk to God. Just say, God, Lord Jesus, I don't understand this, but I'm calling out to you. I'm a sinner and I need forgiveness and I just wanna believe in you because my life isn't working my way. So I want to believe in you. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that if there's one or two or more here this morning, they've never placed their faith in you. God, that they would call out to you, Lord Jesus, save me. Lord Jesus, forgive me. Lord Jesus, I never understood that your death on the cross was for me and that if I were the only one on the planet, you would have died for me and for my sins. So I receive that forgiveness from you and I ask you to save me, be my savior. I wanna follow you. God, I pray that 
from the newest person in here to the one who's attended the most years. God, would you change our hearts? Would you draw us into the, 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 the communal, eternal, loving intimacy of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? And would we experience the light and the love and the power of God in our lives? And God, would you take somebody who could be spiritually dead this morning and bring them to spiritual life, eternal life, everlasting life through their faith in your son, Jesus. We love you, God. We worship you today. You are awesome. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.